Hi, everyone. My name is Mal Surratt, and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership in the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. Today, we'll be having our, we'll be having our fifth part of our six-part series on John Dugan's new book, Leadership Theory, Cultivating Critical Perspectives. In this episode, we're going to discuss co-curricular applications of the book. So my guests today are Dr. John Dugan and Dr. Leslie Ann Brown Henderson. Dr. John Dugan is a professor in the higher education program at Loyola University of Chicago. John also serves as the principal investigator for the multi-institutional study of leadership. Relevant to our discussion here today, John is the author of the re- recently released book, Leadership Theory, Cultivating Critical Perspectives. And Dr. Leslie Ann Brown Henderson serves as the executive director of campus inclusion and community at Northwestern University. Leslie Ann earned her bachelor's degree from the University of Miami master's degrees in student affairs administration, higher education, and counseling psychology, and her doctorate in counseling psychology with an emphasis on multicultural issues in higher education from Texas A&M University. Prior to arriving at Northwestern, Dr. Brown Henderson worked in the Counseling Center at Michigan State University and in the Department of Multicultural Services at Texas A&M University. Welcome, Leslie Ann and John. Hey. Hi. Thank you for having us. So, uh, Leslie Ann, I wanted to, uh, we're going to start off with our normal structure, and I'm going uh, to ask you some questions here so we can get to know you a little bit better as a person and a professional. Um, so, this section is called Rapid Fire. Are you ready for some hard-hitting questions, Leslie Ann? I am. Okay, great. So, my first question for you is, uh, what does it mean to you to be Janadian? Um, Janadian is a term that I think I made up. I'm not sure if others use it, but it basically talks about my heritage. Um, I was born in Montreal, Canada, and I didn't move to the U.S. till I was 13 years old. And I was born to two very Jamaican Caribbean parents. So I say that I'm Janadian, which is Jamaican-Canadian, because I really grew up as a very Jamaican child in Canada. Um, And that perspective really informs a lot of the work that I do and um, really the reason why I do the work that I do as well. So that's what it means to be Janadian. Great. Thank you. That was a, you did a great job answering that question in the allotted amount of time and really addressing a complex issue. So that was great. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, what relationship do you have with the company Men's Warehouse? <laughs> um, so my partner and I, when we got married, um, we had a woman who her heritage is, um, she's from India, and she was used to doing really big Indian, beautiful, colorful weddings. Um, And she did ours with that perspective, so captured lots of beautiful moments. And Men's Warehouse reached out to us and asked if they can use our pictures, or one of her pictures of us, in a commercial. So that commercial aired um, two summers ago, and it still airs now every now and then. Oh, that's so cool. That's really exciting. That's like, is, is that the dream when you, uh, when you plan a wedding, that someone would be like, your wedding looks so awesome, we want it to be in a commercial? <laughs> well, I don't know. For us, it was really, our photographer was so awesome, and she was newer in kind of the game of photography, so we thought this was quite an opportunity for her to get some national attention um, mm. and for us to continue to thank her for the, I mean, she captured every moment so beautifully. Mm. Great. So uh, to loop in the, uh, the other member of our conversation here, uh, <laughs> Leslie, and how did you meet John Dugan? <laughs> so John Dugan, um, I met him at a NASPA leadership dinner. I was the chair of the placement exchange that year, and NASPA has all their leaders go to this dinner, and John 
was um, a finalist for the Dissertation of the Year Award. And we sat at our table and everyone introduced themselves. And when he said his name, I literally was speechless. I had done a lot of my research in grad school on the social change model, had read his work, was a huge fan, but had never met him, didn't, had never set eyes on him. And when I did, I just couldn't speak. It was like meeting a rock star. For me, it was the equivalent. Um, so that was how we met and um, a really great relationship pursued after that, and I'm really great to call him, to, I'm really thankful to be able to call him a great colleague and a friend. Leslie Ann is incredibly generous in this story <laughs> because probably what she thought five minutes into the conversation was, how do I switch tables? And no. she's been um, <laughs> really generous over the years because I constantly follow her and I'm knocking on her door asking, hey, can you come out and play? I have a new project, a new idea. I know you just had a child. Is there any way you would still <laughs> work with me on this? I know you're doing 8 million things. So I'm lucky she hasn't classified me as a stalker at this point. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Leslie Ann, how did, you, uh, how did you get into student affairs and leadership work? Yeah, um, so a lot of it is, was through my undergraduate experience. I went to the University of Miami, go Canes, and um, was really involved, worked in our Office of Student Activities for my four years at Miami, and our Vice President of Student Affairs at the time, who is still currently Vice President, Dr. Patricia Whiteley asked me if I had ever heard of student affairs and if I were interested and um, connected me, which was then called the Minority Undergraduate Fellows Program, which is now NUF, the NASP Undergraduate Fellows Program. Um, so that's how I got into student affairs. And my love for leadership started even as an undergraduate student. I started a conference for black students to explore leadership then. Um, through my dissertation work, I really wanted to connect the ideas of identity and persistence and leadership together to see how leadership could help um, us explain the relationship between stress that students of color experience on um, predominantly white campuses and um, their persistence through the academy. And then from there, I just have always loved leadership. So I've created a learning community on a campus and have always um, had a passion for leadership. So got my introduction into student affairs through leadership, really. Um, so it's been a long road, and I've enjoyed every moment of it. Great. So uh, present company notwithstanding, what is, the, uh, what is the best book about leadership? Oh, I would say that I know. I think it's the current book. <laughs> um, I think it just brings so much complexity to how we understand leadership. And of course, I'm biased, and that's okay. I own that. Um, but I do think I was really um, lucky to be a part of the preliminary conversations on the book and be a part of the research team. So the conversations that me and so many of the colleagues in that room had um, that really made it kind of, we leaned into the gray on this, and I think that's what was needed and has been needed for a long time. So I'm going to say the best book about leadership is the present book, and people can critique me for that if they want. That's fine. <laughs> okay, great. So um, we are going to transition now to our next segment, which is Higher Ed, Two Truths and a Lie. So I'm going to provide two true stories from Higher Ed current events and one lie, and Leslie Ann and John are going to have to parse out the lie. The theme this week is intellectual property. John and Leslie Ooh. Ann, are, are you ready? Yes, you I think so. You know this always makes me nervous, but <laughs> with Leslie Ann as a teammate, we're going to do this, Mom. 
<laughs> okay. All right. I love that this is the part that makes you nervous. Uh, <laughs> <Freak me> out. <laughs> sounds like I talk about complex leadership ideas all the time, but I don't have to guess about about the like only two funny things that Miles could find that happened in higher ed in the last three weeks. Right. Right. <laughs> All right, so are you ready for your three options? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right, here we go. Your first option is last week, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan released a video using footage of Boston College. Apparently, the use of the video was unauthorized. Sean Casey, a senior creative producer at BC, tweeted in response, this video includes footage from one of my videos for BC. The speaker did not receive permission to use. Shame, shame, shame. So that is your first option. Your next option is that recently at the University of Kentucky, a student was caught attempting to steal an exam. What was unique about this particular situation is the student dropped into the faculty member's office by climbing through the ceiling ducts. The faculty member returned while the student was in the office. So that is your next option. And then your final option is that the television station at Mississippi State recently got into trouble for broadcasting episodes of NCIS. The station had to pay a fine, though the station manager calculated the risk in advance and determined it to be worth the cost. Roger Sherman, the station manager, said, my mom loves Mark Harmon. I told her to tune in, and she got a huge kick out of it. So those are your three options. We've got, we've got uh, Paul Ryan and unauthorized use of uh, footage of Boston College. We have University of Kentucky ceiling duct, uh, ceiling duct uh, exam ceiling, and we've got NCIS and Mississippi State. Hmm. Okay. What is All this, right. John? Okay, well, so I am so totally excited because I know we can rule one of them out. I actually feel okay. useful this time around. So the first one, I actually write a story about the Paul Ryan incident. And I remember it because the tweet struck me as so funny because um, I'm a total Game of Thrones nerd. So mm. um, in the tweet when it was like, shame, 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 I kept thinking about uh, the cult member in the show who was ringing the bell and um, and I kind of was like envisioning Paul Ryan walking down a flight of stairs and having someone following him and, you know, saying shame. So I know that one is true. So that's, that's okay. what I can help with, Leslie Ann. What do you think? Okay. So, well, that's helpful. Um, I mean, the so feeling duck the, thing is like, really? Yeah. I mean, it's believable because it's possible, but in this age of technology, would someone still climb in the ceiling ducts? It's and very reminiscent. TV. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's like reminiscent right. of the old <laughs> Friends episode where someone turned yes. to like delete an answering machine message or something. <laughs> exactly. Yep. I feel like I would go with that as being a lie. Okay, let's do it. Should we do that? Okay. Yeah. I- all right, so uh, John did have is, – is correct. He, he was certain about the Paul Ryan thing, and that is true. Uh, I do believe, uh, as a fellow uh, Game of Thrones nerd, I do believe that that was uh, – I do believe the shame reference was a reference to uh, Game of Thrones. Unfortunately, you did guess the, the wrong, uh, the wrong uh-huh. other option. So that did happen. A student did Mission Impossible style uh, scoot along the, uh, the ceiling ducts and try to steal an exam at the University of Kentucky. The uh, wow. fake story was Mississippi State and NCIS. Uh, that was actually a small tribute to my mother, who has a real thing for Mark Harmon. So, uh, 
We'll also now we'll also now know for sure if she listens to the podcast. So right, we're, right. We're gonna, we're gonna find we're gonna find that out too. So um, all right, great. So that's higher ed two truths and a lie. Um, all right, so we'll transition to our next segment, which is six big leadership questions. So Leslie Ann, we'll start with you. Um, so sp- related to the related to the textbook or the facilitator's guide here, how have you used this content with your staff? Mm-hmm. Um, so being in Chicago, I am really, really blessed to have John right down the street. Um, so John and Tasha Thurman, who was one of his graduate students who just graduated with her doctorate, her PhD, congratulations, Tasha, um, came and did um, kind of piloted a lot of the key concepts of the book with my staff. And again, as the I'm the executive director of campus inclusion and community, and in that role, I oversee multicultural student affairs, an office called Student Enrichment Services, which services the needs of low-income first-generation students, and a third office that's called Social Justice Education, and they do education, um, social justice education training programs for students across campus. So these are students, these are staff members who really feel as though social justice is at the very heart of everything that they do and really at their their heartbeat. So introducing the book and having John and Tasha come in and kind of walking them through and kind of wrestling with was um, really, really an awesome experience for our staff. It helped them to think about leadership. It helped them to think about how they were developing their programs and how they could um, lean into the gray and make those maybe a little bit more complex or to leave room for students to be able to wrestle with some of the concepts and to think about um, the various tenets of leadership and how their own personal stories fit into that, or it gives them permission, it gave them permission to say, well, my story doesn't quite fit into this model in this way. Um, So it was really well received by my staff, and they were really excited for the book to come out. Um, This was probably a year before the release of the book. Great. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, John, so I uh, have a, a, a question for you. So it's, it's uh, easy to imagine the application of this work in a curricular setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it's pretty easy as you're going through the book to think through, uh, you know, how you could structure a class around this content. Um, but how do you think that we as student uh, leadership practitioners should approach tackling the depth you cover in a less structured environment? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an incredibly important question. And this goes back to sort of something we talked about a long time ago when we first met Miles, which is I kind of have this pracademic uh, approach to my work because I was an administrator and a scholar practitioner for years before I transitioned to the faculty world. So um, certainly I use it in a curricular setting and there's some direct translation there. But if it wasn't also useful and less structured um, co-curricular settings, it would be less interesting to me. So let me give you two ways in which I think that can happen. I think the first is this idea of how do you tease out the core concepts. So really, exposure doesn't have to be just undergraduates reading this as, as part of like a co-curricular experience. You know, when I would do a seven-week series or um, a, a retreat, you don't t- typically have a text you have people read. Um, but that doesn't mean it isn't transferable in terms of the content. So 
for example, um, the first three chapters of the book really set up this alternative way of thinking about leadership and making meaning. So you may have an event that has nothing to do with leadership theory, but if you're trying to help students become critical learners, you can take these three concepts um, from critical perspectives, these meta-themes of um, social location, uh, ideology and hegemony, and stocks of knowledge, and turn those directly into the learning experience. So for example, we've done where I've gone to institutions or I've worked here at Loyola and delivered a session that's just on stocks of knowledge, where what we're doing is we're doing, spending an hour and a half together looking at what are the prototypes we have for leaders or the process of leadership, and then deconstructing where those came from and what are some of the implicit biases that are embedded in it, um, how does that then shape how we engage with one another, and that in and of itself is starting to stim stimulate much of the same learning that would hopefully happen from reading the book. And then I think the second way is um, when you think of how we approach our programs in general, someone may not read a chapter on, let's say, um, you know, person-centered theories, but if someone is presenting uh, strengths-based leadership or they're working with emotionally intelligent leadership, the very way that they would train on that would hopefully look different based on the leadership educator's reading of the text. Um, so they might go in and instead of simply um, using strengths-based leadership as a heuristic, talk about context more. And whether individuals with um, uh, minoritized social identities may have the same ability to engage in certain strengths like command in the same way as someone like me as a cisgender white male. Uh, and so it, I think it can be used as, as a sort of like a teased out segment of it um, without using the whole book uh, to deliver education over time. Okay, great. So Leslie, and I wanted, I, I wanted your thoughts as someone who's, who's really working in a day in day out in a co-curricular space. Uh, John gave a, a couple of examples there, but uh, you know, I, I think one takeaway for me from the textbook was that John really does pull us away from theoretical certainty. And so I, I wondered uh, what your thoughts were on how the work translates to something meaningful when time is limited. You know, I just think of, you know, you've got one hour, you're coming in, you're gonna provide training for, so for instance, I've got a one hour training that I'm doing soon for the orientation staff here at GW. And I'd love to bring, you know, I'd love to bring some of John's work into that conversation. What do you, you know, what do you see as, uh, you know, how do you think the work translates in like a really short uh, sort of, you know, quick in, quick out sort of session with students? Mm -hmm. I think, um, I think that some of the basic things that I think are really important that John and the various um, thought leaders, thought partners with the book and um, the, re the writers of the facilitation manual kind of bring out is that who you are matters, context matters, and issues of power and privilege are undercurrents throughout all of it. And as we can start to think about that and to recognize that, then that complicates our, our general understanding of any given theory or heuristic. And what that really serves to do, I think, and what we've, we've talked about, we talked about when we were at the table talking about the different um, theories, was that it should create more of a dialogue, right? So John gave the example of with StrengthsFinder, StrengthsQuest, the, the talent theme of command. Well, how command, who's allowed to sh show up fully in that talent or fully in that strength? 
and why and who's not? And how can we make room to talk about those experiences? So if we have a woman of color like me who has command, which I don't, but let's just say I did, and someone like John, how, how is that strength played out and how is that perceived, right? And how can we make room at the table to be able to talk about that? And um, dialogue, and I'll talk a little bit more about this when we start talking a little bit more about what some experiential ways, but dialogue we know is, is a really, really important tool um, in leadership. And this, what we're trying to do here is to say it's not so black and white. There is a lot of gray. And if you look at it through the lenses of your experience, your identity, and understand some of these key elements like social location um, and others, then it starts to complicate things in a way that makes us both the educator, the learner, and the learners simultaneously of our experience, which is really important. Here's what I love that you just shared, Leslie, and, I'm, and I hadn't thought of this before, but Miles, like, when you think about the one-hour time frame, what Leslie Ann just laid out is, is that difference between are we trying to have people consume knowledge or are we trying to develop critical learners? And so I know for me oftentimes when I'm pushed into a one-hour session, I'm like, okay, what is the tangible takeaway, the, the absolute certain outcome that someone's going to have at the end of it? And that's more about me feeling efficacious and like I did my job versus mm -hmm. in an hour priming people with questions so they walk away with more questions than answers um, mm -hmm. and feeling like maybe I failed if, if that's the case because there's nothing tangible in terms of an outcome. But in reality, that's the difference between consumption and, and learning. And so I think this notion that Leslie Ann brings up about how we engage in dialogue, you can still do that in an hour. How you ask mm -hmm. questions in a different way, you can still do in an hour, but maybe we as educators have to be more comfortable with um, not being as certain that we're going to have a tangible, concrete outcome uh, at the end of that very limited amount of time. And that's okay because we know that the, the thinking and the, and the critical learning will continue after. Mm. I mean, somewhere, somewhere John Dewey is very pleased with this conversation that we're having. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a, <laughs> It's that challenge of, you know, it's that challenge of, you know, whether it's a one-hour setting or whether it's a class, a, a curricular setting, um, you know, it's handing over control of a process. You know, it's a really scary mm -hmm. thing. A, it's a really scary thing as a, an instructor. Um, all right, so sort of staying on the same line, um, John, when, when folks are facilitating this content, how do you think, and this is something that I've, that I've thought about since reading the book, how do you think that folks should be incorporating the more destabilizing parts of the book? There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, as, as Leslie Ann noted, uh, the book as a whole really does lean into the gray. And so when do you think is the appropriate time to introduce concepts like leadership as a social construct or leadership being derived from paradigms? And should we be putting those perception-altering assumptions front and center in our conversation? Should we be starting with those ideas? or should we be building towards those within our facilitation? Yeah, so I mean, I'm going to share my bias on this, and I'll say right up front that that second part of your question, um, I believe we should be putting those perception-altering assumptions up front and center from day one in leadership education, period, end of story. And, and that's like definitely my bias in how I think development unfolds and how I think you disrupt 
the story most often told in dominant narratives. Um, that having been said, I think you don't do it in a way that's um, so disruptive that people disintegrate. You have to couple it with structure and support that allows someone to then stay in process despite all of the ambiguity. Uh, and you know, I'm thinking immediately now of um, you know, something that's important to me and that's come out as I've had conversations with people about the book, which is you know, we've made choices to say let's teach from this very dominant narrative around leadership education. And you know, some folks have questioned, well, should I wait till senior year to, you know, is this a capstone um, workshop retreat type book, or is this something you introduce early on? And I'm increasingly inclined after seeing the work done with, with students to say, the sooner you do it, the better, because less mm -hmm. unlearning has to happen that way. And so the sooner we can introduce these ways of thinking, the better. Now, that having been said, I mean, I don't think I would ever plan a co-curricular program around epistemologies and research paradigms, <laughs> you know, from constructivism to postmodernism. Like, I wouldn't have attended that as an undergrad. I wouldn't have attended it as a grad student. I might not even attend it now, right? Like, and I'm, an, I'm like, super nerdy. But um, I think that, like, that's not maybe the most engaging. Like, I'm all of a sudden I'm envisioning, like, a marketing display. Like, come engage in postmodern leadership. Probably not going to get many takers on that one, right? Uh, but I think the idea of the social construction of leadership can be introduced without that language very early on. So when you start from, for example, a narrative perspective, and you get people to engage in critical self-reflection around their positionality by writing their, narr their narrative story around how they've come to understand leadership, they're really engaging with stocks of knowledge. And then you mm -hmm. can use what's surfaced from that as a vehicle to disrupt the story most often told, or to begin with an alternative story altogether. All and you don't necessarily have to name that and dive into what is social constructionism to have that same outcome in the process. And so, you know, I'm always going to be a champion for the sooner the better, because then that unlearning is less, I think, um, ego-threatening, it's, it's less difficult, and it centers the experiences of everyone versus uh, a select few who benefit from privilege. Yeah. Mm. I think that's really important, John, especially the, just the idea of like what I said before, your story matters, right? So how do we get students to start trying to find themselves in these theories, and if not, being able to say, critique them, and maybe not in, in using those terms, but saying what's missing for them or how does it not fit what they've experienced, right? So if we're, so if we're thinking about stocks of knowledge as well as just what stories are told and what stories aren't told, how do we start mm -hmm. validating the stories that aren't being told and giving students who generally don't have a voice a voice through their own experiences, through their own voice, um, and encouraging them to start thinking about it in those terms rather than saying, well, you're not included in this, this happened then, or this isn't exactly for you, right? Mm. I, I mean, I love that. And, you know, I know this sounds probably, um, I mean, I hope it doesn't sound pejorative, but part of me thinks when I look at the vast majority of our programs, our starting point is come in and let us tell you about what leadership is mm -hmm. versus come in and let's co-construct what leadership is. And that's just radically different. What you've suggested, Leslie, and for me, changes the entire way in which we deliver 
co-curricular leadership education. Mm. Yeah, it, I mean, I, the, the conversation sort of reminds me of a point that Laura Osteen made on this podcast uh, once, which, uh, and, she, and she wasn't putting down the idea of definitional clarity, but she was ultimately saying that what she had sort of settled on is that she doesn't really matter which definition of leadership we pick, mm-hmm. but it matters that we all come into a space, that we're all operating in the space with the same definition of leadership. And I think that that is really relevant to this idea of when uh, the story most often told is being disrupted um, because you could be operating in a space with, you know, if this was like a semester-long program or even a one-hour or a half-day program, you could be operating with different ideas. Half, you know, uh, people could have very different ideas. People could feel excluded. People could feel, you know, like um, uh, overly empowered or like unnecessarily empowered through that conversation if you don't put those things front and center. So. Um, well, Maz, I'd take that a step further and say that I think part of what I've observed Leslie Ann do really well in, in, in her work and part of what I think you were, and correct me if, you're, if I'm misinterpreting Leslie Ann, but part of what I hear you saying is that when you, you start a program understanding that we're not trying to indoctrinate someone to the social change model or to a particular viewpoint, but saying leadership really is the sense that people make of it, then we're teaching people how to elicit that sense that might be radically different in a singular space because people have gotten there differently. And what a skill set to have to be able to go into a room and elicit and create space for these myriad definitions to emerge and then triangulate around a shared understanding. I mean, that's a completely different way than how we typically operate with our our leadership programs. Mm Yeah, so... Leslie Ann, to, to circle back for a second, uh, we've we've sort of been we've sort of been talking around this, but uh, if we, you know, what sorts of ideas do you have for for experiential options from the book? You know, what what can we do that can really put put the experience of the book and the sort of control of the learning back into the hands of our students? Yeah. Um, so I mentioned I also already mentioned dialogue, but I think um, dialogue about these issues, dialogue about how students are understanding the book, dialogue about their stories, dialogue about um, how we understand one another through the lenses of um, these key concepts in leadership really are, is really, really key to learning. So in terms of um, experiential options, in the facilitator guide that the chapter that I wrote, there's, there's a lot of dialogue within that piece because we know dialogue is powerful. Um, and it assists us in understanding not only ourselves better, but others better. Um, so as students are grappling with these concepts and really trying to find how they insert themselves or not into them, um, then being able to have dialogue, particularly across lines of difference, um, in a leadership setting, in a class setting, in a co-curricular setting, enhances their learning. So um, I do a lot of dialogue work at Northwestern. Um, my staff does a lot of dialogue work with their, sta- with their students. Um, and we've seen through you know, the, the um, social change model and um, the various studies of that, that really dialogue is a powerful tool in terms of increasing students' capacity for leadership. So 
Um, that is one experiential option that we use often that the book certainly invites. And I think that the facilitator guide um, through the various chapters also speaks to. Great. Um, John, so we've talked a little bit about the, the um, uh, shorter exposure time for instruction in co-curricular settings. So um, if you could, you know, if there were only, if you could distill down this, you know, work of years and years of your life, uh, you know, that easy task, uh, into uh, just picking a, a few takeaways from the book that you want as many students as possible to, to be able to hear, what would you, what would you choose? Yeah, so <laughs> that's a big question. Um, I would say for me there's three things. So if, if I'm a leadership educator out doing this work co-curricularly, there would th be three pieces that I would hope students take away and educators infuse in how they engage around leadership, um, education, how they structure experiences, all of that. Um, the first would be, without a doubt, the importance of understanding prototypes. So if we did more around understanding that we have these implicit prototypes for what a leader looks like, who a leader is, and then how leadership plays out, we would have a better understanding of social location, social stratification, and how, po how power essentially plays out in all of these leadership experiences. And let me give you a specific example. So what is the prototype we have of an RA? Or, an, you, you know, Miles, you talked about going into chat with and do a session with orientation leaders. Is there an implicit prototype of who that student is that then systematically advantages some when they apply for that position, disadvantages others, creates a dynamic amongst the group in which some voices are heard more than others. And so I think if we can do a better job of helping understand prototypes, um, that would be, I think, a, a huge takeaway. The second is thinking about what it means to actually train people around the use of authority. So. Mm -hmm. I think we do a convenient sidestep out of power and authority oftentimes because we want to believe that people will use it for, um, you know, positive purposes, but that's simply not the reality of the world that we live in, nor the reality of the world that we're sending our graduates into. And when we don't train people to understand power dynamics and what it means to engage with authorities who may not recognize the importance of social identity, who may not be collaborative, who may misuse their power, we have left students ill-prepared for the realities of this work. Uh, and then I think the, the third piece is if students can center their own legitimacy as their, you know, as their identity, from um, their own efficacy, from their own agency, that's a huge piece. And for me, that's a whole lot around uh, critical self-reflection, positionality, but the goal being the purposeful, you know, I think, and, and I'm guilty of this too, we talk about resilience, but the flip side of resilience is that it is derived out of agency. And so how, how are we treating agency and how are we purposely cultivating agency through our leadership programs? And um, one size doesn't fit all with that. It, it's a function of our uh, social positionality. So you know, I think for me the three pieces would be how can we do a better job of um, naming and disrupting prototypes around leaders? How can we do a better job of training and preparing people to negotiate power dynamics and authority structures? And then third, what does it mean to 
really purposely cultivate agency. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for uh, thank you for tackling that uh, that very easy question. Um, <laughs> Leslie Ann, I uh, my last question uh, I think is is perhaps the one of the more important questions that that uh, we've asked in the series related to the book. Um, what have you seen on your campus that, that, that you think this content will help address? Yeah, um, so in the last two, several years, Northwestern has been a pretty activist campus in its history. But in the last several years, there's been um, quite a rise in student activism, not only on our campus, but across the country. And one of the things that students, many of the students who are activists or who are involved in many of the social movements are saying is that they don't feel as though they're apart, right? They don't feel like they're included in the, the structures of their institution. They don't feel like they're included in the policies of their institution, and they're pushing back on that. Um, so in many ways, it's a call to be seen and to be heard um, in their truths. And what I think my students will be excited about is that this book, through the lenses of leadership, allow them to, to really start parsing that out and to, say, and to begin to see and explore how their truths, how who they are, how the structures or the theories that have been leadership really haven't necessarily included them. They haven't been included in that. But this is an invitation um, for their truths to be known and to be incorporated. Um, so my students, I think, or the students that I work with um, would, will be and will continue to be excited about doing this work because that's what they're doing um, on the ground on campuses every single day. This is just asking them to do that in terms of their leadership. And really we know that a lot of student activism, whether it's um, them being active in the community or on campus, um, them doing service-oriented work in the communities for which they're a part, um, all of that has not necessarily always been included in this idea of leadership. Um, so I think for, the, for those students, many of them, they'll say, finally, there's a way for the work that I do for who I am um, to be counted as a leader and for not a leader to be something that I have to fit, a mold that I have to fit necessarily, but something that I am and I can speak to my life experiences and the things that I have done and I do, whether that's at home with my family, whether that's in my community, whether that's on my campus to create change. And that's in large part um, represented in this body of work as well. Great. Well, that is uh, it's a wonderful way to end. So um, thanks, everyone, for joining us for the NASA Leadership Podcast, which is presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. And uh, thanks to John for joining us. And thanks so much to Leslie Ann, who is uh, more graceful and coherent than I uh, am on a normal basis. <laughs> and you were doing that on very little sleep with an infinite home. So uh, yeah. thanks for... Thanks for talking about how we can put leadership theory, cultivating critical perspectives into co-curricular use. Uh, thank so, you so yeah. much. Thanks so much, Miles. And thank you, Leslie Ann. Yeah, thank you, yeah. John. Absolutely. So you can get more information about our knowledge community on the various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash essaylead, on Twitter at NASPSLPKC, 
and on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can connect with me on Twitter at Miles, that's M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we would love to hear about your program, so please shoot an email to NASPA Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, Anna John. Thank you. Thanks so much.